Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. Today's episode comes in three parts. First up, a conversation with Michael O'Hanlon about his new book on the future of land warfare. Then our regular economic update with David Wessel. And finally, a look at Evidence Speaks, a new series of reports on education and social policy, and its first report by Russ Whitehurst that asks, do we already have universal preschool? Russ also talks about the role evidence should have in the 2016 presidential election. What happens if we bet too heavily on unmanned systems, cyber warfare, and special operations in our defense? Those are some of the many questions that senior fellow Michael O'Hanlon explores in The Future of Land Warfare, his new book from the Brookings Institution Press. To find out more, my colleague Bill Finan, editorial director of the Brookings Press, sat down with the author and asked him a few questions. Bill? Thanks, Fred. And thank you, Mike, for joining us today. Your book is part of a new series that Brookings Press is publishing that's part of the uh, geopolitics in the 21st century. It's also the first book in this series, and we're happy to have you as the premier author there. The series grows out of the Brookings Foreign Policy Program's Order from Chaos Project. Can you tell us a bit about that project? Well, you know, Bill, the best thing to say about that project as it relates to the book is as we were conceptualizing the idea a year ago, as the world seemed to be falling apart in 2014, we had the fall of a quarter of a rock to ISIL. We had the shootdown of the Malaysian jetliner over Ukraine by Russian separatist forces, perhaps with Russian connivance or at least some hand indirectly. We had the Ebola outbreak. Everything seemed to be just falling apart all at once. And especially the broader Middle East being in such turmoil, Martin Indyk, whose specialty, of course, geographically had been the Middle East and still is, he suggested this concept. And I think it's a great idea, but there was also some very useful pushback because some people would say, hey, listen, I study East Asia. There's no chaos there. There's a rising big power. And others would say, uh, I study Europe. There's no chaos there. There's old-fashioned aggression, Russian style. And so my book actually straddles this debate because part of what I see as the future of land warfare is these messy conflicts where there is chaos. And part of it is deterring big powers from doing nasty things to our interests or allies. And so I don't have to choose. And in fact, therefore, there's plenty of order and plenty of chaos as the subject focus of my book. You begin uh, your book by noting that drones, cyber warfare, and special forces cannot do it all. But it has been nothing but drones, special forces, and cyber warfare that have been in the headlines for the last several years. What can they not do? Well, first of all, I appreciate the question, but I'll push back against it. You know, we've had 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And yes, the big signature military operation in that theater was the killing of bin Laden by commandos. But they only could do what they did. They only had bases from which to fly because we had largely stabilized Afghanistan with those 100,000 U.S. troops and a lot of Afghans, a lot of other NATO troops along the way. And the majority of our effort in South Asia has actually been with good old-fashioned grunts, if you will. Now, admittedly, those are well-trained, well-armed, and high-technology grunts, but it's been primarily soldiers and Marines. That's been the lion's share of the effort. Also in Iraq, the fact that the politics in these two countries, and especially in Iraq, have largely competed with or impeded or even subsequently collapsed some of the military progress, it does not mean that the nature of the combat was primarily about drones, cyber, or space. Uh, Quite the contrary. Now, there is this healthy competition, people saying, listen, we've got to leverage our high technology expertise. This is what we're good at. 
And certainly as you look in the Western Pacific or other areas of potential major power competition, it is more the high technology gadgets or weapons that are crucial. And that's true. And we probably have underplayed their role in terms of the high visibility national security debates of the 21st century. So I welcome people saying we've got a shift. But as, with is off, as is often the case in American strategic debates, we tend to overdo it. And so now we're saying we're just not going to do large-scale stabilization missions anymore as if we can make this decree from the White House or somewhere else inside the Beltway in Washington, and it will produce whatever results we wish in the rest of the world. To use some of the, the, the time-honored cliches, you know, the enemy may get a vote too. Or the Bolshevik line, you may not have an interest in war, but war may have an interest in you. I, I paraphrase that to say, we may not at the moment have an interest in counterinsurgency and stabilization missions, but they may have an interest in us. And I'm happy to uh, spell out a few if you wish. Yeah, could you do that? And actually, let's just think about Syria and, and ISIL for a moment too, because that's where these high-tech sexy weapons are supposed to be at the forefront. But how, how, how do we bring conventional forces to bear on this? Well, first of all, the high-tech weapons in Syria and Iraq have only succeeded in stemming the advances of ISIL. They've helped forces on the ground, the uh, Kurdish forces in Syria and Iraq, push back and maybe take a little bit more territory within Syria. But it's only because they were coupled with ground forces. And generally speaking, ISIL holds 90% as much land as it did before the United States entered the war. So the basic empirical reality is that drones and air power are not winning that war. Uh, but I would also say that if you look at a couple of scenarios, yes, I'll come to Syria in a second, but let me also mention India and Pakistan. These are countries that have fought several times in their past. Uh, these are countries where even as recently as 2008, Pakistan and Pakistani security had nurtured the Lashkar-e-Taiba movement, which then carried out the Mumbai attacks, killing almost 200 people, including some Americans. And India did nothing by way of military response. If that kind of thing happens again, I believe India will retaliate and sub the subcontinent of, uh, of South Asia will be on the verge of all-out war with the potential for nuclear escalation. I'm not suggesting the United States would use its ground forces to intervene on the, on the side of one of the countries over the other, but I am suggesting that a lot of what could unfold would be very important for our security. And if we could find some way to persuade New Delhi and Islamabad to accept a ceasefire, an international stabilization force along their frontier, maybe trusteeship for Kashmir, which is the province that's been at the root of a lot of their conflicts for some extended period of time, and the deployment, therefore, of several tens of thousands of American troops as part of an international coalition. That may look better than all-out nuclear war between India and Pakistan, even from our own interests. That's the kind of scenario that I try to spell out in the book. Syria uh, probably takes less imagination because we see it before our eyes every day. There's no immediate role that I can envision for a big American deployment. I'm not proposing another Iraq or Afghanistan invasion, but I could see a way towards something like a Bosnia-style peace deal someday, not imminently, but maybe in a couple of years, in which different sectors of the country are governed primarily by different parts of the population. There's a loose, unifying central government, uh, government role. But for the most part, this is a, a, a quasi-partitioned or at least confederated country. And that peace deal requires an international force to uphold it because there is no Syrian party that can do it. There's no Syrian military that's trusted by the different groups to the point where it could actually implement and impose this peace deal. So if we get to that point, that, and I think we will, by the way, even though it's not on the horizon right now, 
we're going to need to be part of a multinational peace implementation force. And it'll be dangerous, and it'll be hard, and it'll be long. It'll be much tougher than Bosnia because Syria would be five times the size and probably 10 times the difficulty. Uh, but again, if the alternative is to see this war burn out indefinitely and to see lone wolf attacks like Charlie Hebdo every few months because ISIL still has the command of the imagination of much of the, of the world and we get all these lone wolf effects and we get regional states destabilized by refugees or perhaps assassination attempts, ISIL trying to march on Baghdad, perhaps trying to attack Jordan, who knows what else. I don't think we can live in that world forever. So I anticipate the next U.S. president will put in place uh, various covert and overt operations that will help create a stronger, moderate opposition over time leading to the possibility of a peace deal backed up by international force. Now, again, let me just underscore, that's a, that's a mouthful. And I realize I've put a lot of detail on the table. You don't have to buy my scenario to buy my book or to believe my <laughs> argument. Uh, what I try to do is develop 10 or so scenarios. And my point is simply to say, I think each one of these probably has three, five, 10% plausibility. And we've got to stretch our imaginations to where the future of land warfare could really involve our major national interests. And just because at this juncture in history, we would prefer to think otherwise, uh, you know, we can't be like the ostrich putting the head in the sand just because we're tired of these kinds of wars. They may come back whether we like it or not. So two of your scenarios, you talk about China and Russia, which are probably the two countries that jump to everyone's minds when they think of large conventional forces being used. But it, it seems from my reading of your book, you're, you're, you don't argue that we'll ever go head to head with these countries. And instead, there seems to be a case of a deterrent effect being in place by having a large conventional force. Is that one of the main takeaways from, from your book that we should have? Yes. And thank you for distinguishing between the scenarios that I think are quite unlikely and ones that I'm primarily interested in making sure we render even more unlikely versus those that I think may arise whether we like it or not, whether we do everything within our power to prevent them or not. And dealing with Russia and China, as much as these two countries can be problematic these days, especially Russia, I don't expect to lead to ground war. But one of the concerns would be, does Vladimir Putin sense that NATO is so underprepared to defend its eastern members, especially the Baltic states, that he can start to slice off little pieces with little green men like he used in Crimea or some other clever 21st century set of tactics that he can take great Russian pride in. And of course, he would enjoy uh, showing to the world that the NATO military alliance isn't really all it's cracked up to be and maybe even sowing the seeds of NATO's demise if it's proven unable to defend the territory of its members as its Article 5 treaty provision requires. So I have no doubt that Putin, if he thought he could get away with it easily, would be tempted to consider some kind of an aggression even against, let's say, Estonia or Latvia. These are the two Baltic states that have the largest Russian-speaking populations. And so what you want to do is recognize it could be complicated. He might try indirect means. It may not just be a classic invasion. But nonetheless, we'd like to make it apparent that we're prepared to respond in kind if necessary. Uh, again, if we have that clear message that we're able to send, I don't expect the war will happen. So part of what I'm trying to do is, is uh, anticipate how Putin thinks. One last point, since we are delving into Russia, in some of my separate writing, not in this book, I am arguing for a diplomatic push to create a new Central European security architecture and wind back or defuse this rivalry with, rivalry with Russia. In other words, I think we have to be diplomatically creative. I am not an uber hawk who thinks we solve every problem with a military hammer uh, and turn every problem into a nail. 
Uh, many of these problems, I think we have to be flexible and creative, including some new diplomatic approaches. And on the Brookings spectrum on how to handle the Ukraine crisis, I'm actually on the dovish side because I would prefer to see if we could make this kind of a negotiated deal with Putin and others over a central European neutral zone that would keep these countries like Ukraine permanently out of NATO. Others at Brookings would say, I'm appeasing Putin, I'm being too kind, uh, I'm giving him something as a reward for his aggressions. So again, the book is not meant to suggest that every one of these scenarios needs to be viewed primarily as a military problem and solved through military means. But if you're a defense force planner looking out 10 and 20 years, and you're also trying to use the military instrument to shore up deterrence as part of a broader set of tools. Uh, you need to have that military instrument up to the task that it's being asked to perform. And that's what the book's all about. So, so what is this new security architecture that you're, you're, you're mentioning that's in your other writings? I mean, can, you can capture that in a nutshell? I'll capture it in a tiny nutshell because it's not really what the book's about. Right, right. But, but nonetheless, the idea here is simple, that uh, Jeremy Shapiro, who's been one of my co-authors on this topic, uh, and myself, and some other people who writing separately, like Senator Bill Bradley, have felt for a long time that NATO's eastward push, however much it might have been peaceful in our minds, and it might have been peaceful in purpose, and might have had some very noble goals of consolidating democracy um, in Central Europe, was seen by Russians, or at least portrayed by Russians, who were opportunistic nationalists and you know trying to win elections and win votes, uh, was was portrayed as triumphalist as at least psychologically and politically threatening, even if not necessarily militarily threatening, and that we have to recognize this is the way the Russian political psyche is acting. Now, a lot of it is Russians telling themselves stories, getting worked up over things they shouldn't, uh, suppressing dissent uh, when pro-Western Russian voices want to critique some of this narrative that Putin and his cronies uh, develop. Uh, they've made it harder for their own countrymen to challenge them. They've killed off or at least verbally suppressed a lot of dissident voices. So I'm not trying to reward that, and I'm aware that that's what's going on. But I still think the majority, the vast majority of Russians, view NATO's behavior in the Central European states since the end of the Cold War as at least, if nothing else, triumphalist, arrogant, uh, and psychologically threatening. And moreover, I don't think that NATO expansion to any of the other states in this region would help us. It wouldn't help us through the current crisis because no one's proposing that it should be done soon anyway. And over time, I think it's just going to perpetuate the kind of political climate in Russia that allows the Putins of the world to thrive. So the idea is if you can get Russia to co-guarantee the security of Central European states, could we then agree ourselves that they would not be offered NATO membership? I'll bring us back to the book then. You talk about large conventional force. Can you can you describe what would compose this? I mean, how, how are you thinking of large conventional land warfare? Well, there are 10 scenarios in the book, and I probably need three or four categories. I don't have any one way. And that's, in fact, um, an explicit point that I try to make, that there are voices out there who will say the army should be just about old-fashioned, high-end maneuver warfare. That's what real soldiers do, and we should let the army be the warrior that closes with and kills the enemy. That culture is you know, fundamental to what it's always been and fundamental to its core national purpose. Then there are people who will say, no, great power war and big, big high-end war is a thing of the past. Our adversaries know that we're good at it, so they're not going to challenge us in that way. And we have to worry about these new age threats, not just cyber, but irregular warfare, terrorism, guerrilla conflict. And we should make our ground forces fundamentally about that. 
And I'm saying, you know what? I don't think I'm smart enough, and I don't think you guys are smart enough to figure out the future of warfare. And what we've seen is that there are these plausible threats around the world in a number of scenarios, which again, I try to identify 10 and show the breadth and range of their characteristics and basically argue we need an army that in Dave Petraeus's words, remains a pentathlete army, maybe even a decathlete army, able to do five to 10 different kinds of things. And unfortunately, what that means is you're not gonna be quite as well prepared in each of the five or 10 as you might be if that was the unique and only mission but we don't have the luxury of figuring out which mission will be the only important one. And therefore, we're going to have to keep our soldiers as pentathletes. So why isn't the Army of the Future one of the one that has rods of gods, which I wish you would explain for us because it appears in the book, uh, battlefield robots and swarms of drones that is its centerpiece? Well, first of all, I think robots do have a future and some of the other things as well. But if you look at robotics, uh, I think it's a very hard and probably undesirable uh, obstacle or threshold to go over to say that we should equip robots with weapons and let them decide when to shoot. We've already equipped robots with weapons in the air. That's what drones are. But we don't let them decide. We have a person just as diligently involved, even if they might be physically back in Nevada, <laughs> as if they were the guy up in the cockpit in World War I like Red Baron. I mean, you know, in terms of the decision-making of the human brain, the direct hands-on role for the, uh, for the human being, for the American airman or soldier, is the same that it's been. And I think that's probably good. Our former colleague Peter Singer uh, made this kind of an argument in his, his 2009 book, Wired for War. I think he was fairly compelling. But I think there are areas where robotics will take a, a further step. For example, in the tactical resupply of units, I don't think we need to have manned trucks be the ones driving around roads that are littered with roadside bombs. There is probably a way to have these vehicles be self-propelled and self-controlled. You could have a remote operator watching them and helping when they get into trouble in some way. And you could have a rapid reaction force perhaps come in if they get ambushed and someone's trying to steal them. Uh, but you don't necessarily need to have them manned. And we lost a lot of people in Iraq and Afghanistan who are out there doing tactical resupply. So maybe that's an area where robotics can really progress in the next 10 years. I'm not trying to be a Luddite. There are going to be changes, and many of them are desirable. But the notion that we can turn over warfighting to you know, unmanned systems is, I think, illusory, because ultimately, in most of these complex battlefields, we don't really yet know who the enemy is until we're on the ground with the people. You need to do human intelligence on the ground. There may be certain very specific parts of that task that you can outsource to future robots. But the overall uh, final decision and final determination of, of who's friendly and who's not requires a whole lot of human intuition that we are nowhere near using artificial intelligence to be able to mimic. Frankly, I have my concerns about the day when we might think we get to that point, and I'm not sure it'll be a happy day uh, for the human race or for even for warfare, but we're certainly nowhere near that now anyway. And so plausibly over the next 10 to 20 years, even 30 years, the time frame of my book and its analysis, I think you're looking for robotics to do certain specific additional tasks, which will be useful and important, uh, but will not be fundamentally transformative of the nature of ground combat. Well, thank you, Mike, for the time you've taken, um, and thanks for the chance to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Bill. 
You can learn more about the book on our website at brookings.edu slash futureoflandwarfare. And now, on to the economic update from the director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy. Stay tuned afterward to hear Russ Whitehurst discuss the Evidence Speaks project in his paper, Do We Already Have Universal Preschool? I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. There were some striking numbers in the Census Bureau's recent annual snapshot of U.S. households. Last year, the typical man with a full-time job, the one in the statistical middle of the middle, earned $50,383. In 1973, the typical man earned $53,294, measured in 2014 dollars to adjust for inflation. You heard me right. The median male worker employed year-round and full-time earned less adjusted for inflation in 2014 than a similarly situated worker earned four decades ago. This one fact is both a symptom of an economy that isn't delivering for many ordinary Americans and at least one reason for the dissatisfaction, anger, and distrust that voters are displaying in the 2016 presidential election. What about women, you ask? Well, they haven't closed the pay gap with men, but inflation-adjusted earnings of the female median worker increased by more than 30% between 1973 and 2014. But back to men. First, should we believe these Census Bureau numbers? Yes, but. The census numbers are only as good as the responses census gets from asking people how much they made. And there is reason to believe that people often misremember or give inaccurate numbers. Still, even if the numbers aren't precisely right, there's ample evidence that wages for the typical man in America are stagnating. How come? After all, the U.S. economy has grown substantially since 1973. As I often do when I have questions like this, I consulted Larry Katz, a Harvard University labor economist. He identified three factors. One, workers have been getting more of their compensation in benefits, like health insurance, as opposed to cash wages that the census measures. But that's only a small piece of the puzzle. Two, labor's share of the national income has been declining since 2000. Capital share has been rising. Even when adding in benefits, labor compensation has not been keeping pace with the growth of productivity or output per hour of work. Three, and this is the most important factor, since the 1980s, the gap between the earnings of the best-paid workers and the ones at the middle and the bottom have been widening. More inequality. Now, economists differ over how much of this is the result of globalization, technological change, changing social mores and government policies. But there really is no longer much dispute about the fact that inequality is increasing. It's easy for Republicans to blame this wage stagnation on Democrats and for Democrats to blame Republicans. It's not hard to understand why so many voters are drawn to candidates who acknowledge this reality, lambast incumbents for not doing more to address this, and style themselves as outsiders with fresh approaches to what really is one of the nation's most alarming economic problems. Wages are not going up for the typical male American worker. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. You can get more insight and analysis on fiscal and monetary policy issues from the Hutchins Center at brookings.edu slash Hutchins Center. And finally, I sat down with Russ Whitehurst, a senior fellow in the Center on Children and Families at Brookings and the editor of the Evidence Speaks Project. The Center has just launched this project, so I asked Russ to explain what it's all about. Do we already have universal pre-K? and to discuss what role evidence will play in the 2016 election. Hi, Russ. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? Good, thanks. What is the Evidence Speaks project, and how does it relate to the 2016 election? Evidence Speaks is a new project at 
Brookings, and we're focused on trying to bring the best evidence to bear, the kind of evidence that's created by uh, quantitative social scientists to bring that evidence to bear on the political process. Often we hear people talking about evidence and research, but it's usually cherry-picked or used to advocate. And so we've assembled uh, 12 distinguished researchers across the country who intend to add their voice to, uh, to the political and policy context by uh, speaking for the best evidence. Why did you write this particular paper as the first in the series? Well, part of this was pragmatic. I needed to lead off. And one of my areas of expertise is, uh, is early childhood. But I think it's a good example of how you know, a fresh crunching of numbers can bear on a, an important policy debate. In this case, we have a debate about uh, universal pre-K. It's focused on four-year-olds. The question is, what should the nation or states do to increase uh, participation rates to a universal level? And what I found in looking at the evidence is that actually people haven't provided very good evidence on how many children are presently served. So the paper is about that, looking at the difference between the number of kids who are presently served and those that might represent uh, universal access. It's not every child because every parent doesn't choose to, uh, to send her four-year-old to uh, a federally or state-sponsored center. So what's the difference and how much would it cost to get from where we are to universal pre-K if that's the way the nation wants to go? You write in the paper that the numbers presented by the White House and other sources, quote, may be seriously misleading, unquote. How so? The White House numbers combine three- and four-year-old participation rates. Those are very different. They're about twice as high at the four-year level as, a, as at the three-year-old level. And so if we're talking about providing universal access for four-year-olds and we get numbers from the White House that are much lower because they're combining three-year-olds with four-year-olds, it is, I think, misleading with respect to uh, proportion of unmet need and also in terms of costing it out because if we're saying we need to do it for four-year-olds, we need to know about the number of four-year-olds who are participating, not the average of three- and four-year-olds. And you make a distinction in the paper between access and investment. Why is that distinction important? Well, investment is how much we're going to spend, and it's also a question of what's the return on that investment. It's an area I've written about a lot previously. The question is if we invest, that is we spend on children at this age, what will be the returns when they're in school and when they progress through their education and, uh, and join the labor market? And there are big debates about how much return there is on that investment. But I'm saying let's disregard that and just focus on participation because that's the, the number you have to work with if you're talking about the cost of, uh, cost of a program. So whether you think it's an important investment or not, <laughs> there's still an important question about uh, how many people are participating and what it would cost to get that participation up to a universal level. Now, you've written that the Obama administration's proposal for universal pre-K is $12 billion a year um, over a certain time horizon. What is uh, the cost that you determine in your model in this paper? It's closer to $2 billion uh, a year. And that has to do with the fact that I find that uh, uh, roughly 70% of uh, American four-year-old children uh, are already being served in pre-K programs on a regular basis. And that in the highest socioeconomic levels, uh, only about 83% of children are served. So. I view the unmet need as a difference between the proportion of children who are served in any particular SES strata and 83 percent, which is presumably the level we've get, we can get to if parents have unlimited resources to buy what, uh, buy what they want. And so that turns out to be a much lower number than most people have, uh, have, have talked about. 
And then my cost estimates are derived from talking about half-year programs and figuring a half-year program for preschoolers would cost about half as much as a full-time program for kids in regular uh, elementary schools, and we go from there. I'm not sure where the White House estimate uh, uh, came from. Uh, it is typically the case that uh, when there's a political policy uh, act or advocacy, that we don't get the spreadsheets that generated the, the, the numbers. Uh, uh, one of the broader points here is I think that uh, as people are advocating, uh, uh, whether they're, they're politicians or simple, simply advocacy groups, it's important to get down to that level because it often is a matter of cost and we should be able to see what the assumptions are and where the, uh, where the numbers are, are derived. The assumptions are clearly there and uh, in the paper we're talking about uh, and you can get other estimates if you want to assume other things like higher cost or a longer day program. But when you know where they start from, you can take those and modify them based on your own assumptions about what's needed. Talk to me about the the assumption the Obama administration makes and the the one that you use in your model in terms of subsidizing uh, preschool based on various uh, quintile income levels. They're actually not uh, that different. Uh, uh, my co-author and I pr propose a progressive subsidy uh, where uh, children in the lowest uh, uh, quintile of family income get a full subsidy. Uh, children in the second uh, second quintile up get a uh, get a two thirds subsidy, uh, and in the uh, the middle quintile get about a quarter of their cost uh, paid. Whereas the Obama administration talked, uh, this was a footnote actually. It was called universal pre K or pre preschool for all, but the actual proposal was for uh, a complete subsidy for children at 150 percent of the poverty line or below and some sort of sliding scale uh, going forward. So both of our proposals uh, don't anticipate that it's a free ride for everyone. Uh, the, uh, the public subsidy is concentrated on families uh, at the lower uh, salary levels or income levels. Let me go back to the, uh, to the labels. You just use them. The Obama administration calls it preschool for all. We hear in the media that it's universal pre-K. Are we really talking literally every three- and four-year-old should be in preschool under these programs? Is that feasible? I don't think it's desirable, and uh, it's not feasible if you mean 100 percent. And so uh, we, we can – we know from the three states in, in the United States, Florida, Georgia, and Oklahoma, who have instituted – which have instituted uh, universal pre-K programs, that the participation rates are about – 70 percent. It differs by state or mid-70s. Uh, so that's uh, where we'll go for four-year-olds and it will be less for three-year-olds because many parents don't think their three-year-olds are ready for an organized uh, uh, pre-K setting. So we don't know. We do know that uh, when the service becomes free or subsidized, parents will substitute from what they would have done if they were using their own resources uh, to, the, uh, to the service that's supported by, uh, by taxpayer dollars. And you don't know. It will differ by state and region as to how much that substitution of that substitution occurs. So we could get to 85 percent presumably for four-year-olds, probably 60 percent for, for three-year-olds or 65 percent. Um, not sure that's a good idea for all kids and, and all families. Uh, but that's, that goes to the question of investment rather than the question of access. What would you like to see going forward in terms of the, the impact or the use of this uh, paper on policy and also in politics. 
Well, I'd certainly like to see uh, other people who are advocating for various preschool policies or supports to cost them out. I'd like to know what the numbers are. Everybody who's involved in this process should know where the numbers are coming from because while it's feasible, I think, politically to get a, a new federal investment that's uh, an increase of $2 billion a year on top of a current investment that's about $20 billion a year, if you're talking about adding $12 billion a year to $20 billion a year, that's probably not politically obtainable. So it's important to have the right numbers, and I think that's uh, that's critical. This is an area in which we know a lot less than we need to know, and that's one of my uh, uh, pet themes in this area, that uh, there's simply a lot here that we need to know going forward, and we should be setting up uh, policies that, uh, that can learn so we can – uh, anticipate that there will be trial, there will be error. We're collecting information. We can use that to design better programs and more productive programs going forward. Now, this is the first uh, paper in a series in Evidence Speaks. Can you talk about some of the other authors and papers that you have in the series? We will be uh, generating product uh, weekly. Um, about half of our, uh, our our reports will be quite substantive. That is, they will involve new analyses of, uh, of data. Others will be uh, shorter and reactions to uh, the news of the previous week or something that's quite important from an evidence uh, perspective. I can't tell you uh, what the particular topics will be because uh, we're rolling them out uh, weekly and trying to say stay somewhere close to where the news is and where policy is happening so we won't be uh, uh, writing about things that were important last year rather than important, uh, important in the week. Our contributors are – you'll find them on, on, on the webpage. They are from a mixture of backgrounds. Uh, many economists, uh, a psychologists, a neuropsychologists, and other people who have a history of, uh, of using numbers, doing research, and trying to make it relevant to public policy. Russ, thank you for explaining your project and your paper today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to do so. And that's it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast. In coming weeks, stay tuned for interviews on the Paris Climate Talks, the U.S. election, and more. My thanks to my audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nietzsche, Rebecca Weiser, and Eric Abalahan. Also, thanks again to the Podcast Movement and the Academy of Podcasters for naming the Brookings Cafeteria Best News and Politics podcast in this year's awards. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Deuce.